Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Hi, everyone. This week on Investment Uncut, among other things, we're actually talking about a region that doesn't get talked about enough probably in investing. That's Africa. This week's guest is a partner, recently joined us as a partner at LCP, Norbert Fullerton. Norbert, welcome. Hi. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, Mary. It's a pleasure to be here. Hi, Norbert. Good to have you with us. Could you, before we kick off, give people a sense of, I suppose, both your role at LCP, but actually some of your sort of recent experience that we might draw on through the discussion today? Yeah, sure. As you said, I mean, I'm a partner here at LCP. I'm focused on the investment business. I'm part of the global team that advises institutional investors outside of the UK. So what we call broader investments. So we advise sovereign wealth funds, central banks, and some pension funds outside outside of the region here. And we're also doing that bit of work as well in the Caribbean. So that's also fun. The mainstay of my experience has been advising pension funds in the UK, both on the pension side and on the investment side. But I've also dabbled in fiduciary management. I've had a range of experience in asset management as well, and so on. And I used to advise institutional investors outside of the UK in Europe and also in Africa, in the Middle East. So quite a varied range of experience. Fantastic. Plenty to get into. No, but before we get into the conversation, why don't you just tell us one thing we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV? Wow. What do I moonlight as? I'm a voiceover artist. So outside of work, that is a lot of fun. Keeps me a little bit occupied. I do some commercials from time to time. Just low-key stuff. No big thing on BBC. Not just yet, anyway. I was going to awesome. ask you. Anything we'd know at all or we can put in the... Probably some time ago. Well, just a little low-key stuff on Sky News and also a little bit of Sky commercials and a couple of things on YouTube. Nothing major, really. I love that. Low-key, only Sky. Sky (laughs) Only Sky. (laughs) Casual. But it's a lot of fun. It keeps me out of mischief. You're very experienced with this sort of thing then. So, yeah, expecting great things, Norbert. (laughs) (laughs) We're actually looking for someone to do the voiceover intro, redo the intro for the whole podcast. Perhaps we know where to come. Absolutely. Sure. That'll be a lot of fun. I'm sure I won't be able to do it as good as you guys, but I'll try my best. Brilliant. Should we get stuck in? So Norbert, first, we were really keen to explore with you, I guess, just tell us about African sovereign investors. So you did a piece in our latest Vista article that was talking about them. And I guess, could you give the listeners an overview of who they are, what role they're playing and that sort of thing? So when we're talking about African investors, we are, of course, focused on institutional investors. So we're looking at central banks, we're looking at sovereign wealth funds, and some pension funds as well. And of course, that is the vast amount of our experience here. Of course, we have a retail part of the business, of course, and DC, etc. But we're focused on those larger types of institutional investors. And in terms of some of the, what I do like to do is to kind of compare them to the UK, if that makes sense, UK asset owners. And some of the similarities are, they have huge ambitions. They're relatively diverse in terms of their investment strategies. They're encouraged to invest in a whole lot more of long-dated type of illiquid assets, kind of similar to what a lot of sovereign wealth investors are doing in Canada, also in Australia, and so on, what they've been doing for many, many years. And even recently in the UK, where we've had our prime minister and the chancellor trying to encourage a lot of pension funds to kind of ignite a big bang here by 
considering putting a, a greater slice of their capital in long-term UK assets to support the economic recovery here in the UK. So I think in terms of some of the similarities, that's how they operate or that's how they have been operating to strengthen their economies in order to help in the recovery of COVID, but also to, of course, provide sufficient finances for their members, for the vast population that they have across the continent, for their livelihoods and so on. I guess some of the differences may be things like there are perhaps more restrictions in terms of how they invest. So, for example, there are more restrictions in terms of overseas assets or offshore global investments, because the big theme is about strong collaborations across the region, helping to drive growth and prosperity across Africa, and so on. For example, in Ghana, they have, I think their government recently introduced a COVID alleviation program, which is partnering with pension funds to create guarantees for other investors in order to help to boost their economy and help to drive investment growth across that. And we see that right across the region, straight down through Namibia, Botswana, into South Africa as well. So it's very fascinating, a little bit different in terms of the restrictions, but they do a lot of partnerships as well in order to help economic growth across the region. So in that context, and particularly, I guess, mindful of the restrictions and the strong encouragement to invest locally, but obviously those markets are that much smaller than, for example, the UK. So you've got a large UK pension fund investing in the UK economy, there's still going to be a relatively small part of that economy. And so you can still achieve good diversification by investing in different parts of the economy. How does the diversification conversation happen or how does it work when you're talking about African sovereign wealth, where those economies are so much smaller and you're trying to boost them? But does that tie you into losing some diversification, I suppose? Yeah, to some extent. I mean, when you think about their local assets, of course, they would say, and we would agree, that there is sufficient diversification across Africa, right? Infrastructure, private equity, commodities, all sorts of stuff. Even to a large extent, they have more natural resources than we do here in the UK. It's a very interesting conversation trying to encourage them to invest offshore, to invest in, in global assets. Some are more willing than others, even though they have like 30 or 40%, or some investors have about 30 to 40% allocation to overseas. The inclination is to invest locally because they get some kind of, not necessarily, I guess, some kind of kudos to invest locally to drive their economies. But by and large, they are a whole lot more open to investing overseas, whether it's in the US or in the Far East, global equities, and not just in terms of the traditional types of overseas investing, but also long-dated liquid assets as well, which is very helpful for their inflation protection. Of course, there are threats of inflation coming through due to COVID, etc., so that's been really helpful for them. And also central banks, for example, they've been opening up a whole lot more. Probably about five or 10 years ago when I was advising a central bank in Africa, they were all far more conservative, even though they had a lot of assets, 20 to 30 billion or so, available to invest overseas or types of more risky assets. But they invested primarily in US treasuries or overseas government bonds over the last few years or over recent years. So there's a whole lot more appetite for investing in overseas assets right across the risk spectrum, both in terms of public assets as well as private assets. So they're opening it up a whole lot more, much more of an appetite in order to do so across the region. 
is it's really interesting. It's almost like a really different kind of a mindset, I suppose. And we're very used to thinking in terms of the world as sort of developed markets, thinking of the US as a big part of everything. And I suppose one sort of assumes everyone looks at the world that way, but it's sort of really inverting it, isn't it? It's kind of people starting from the place of Africa being their home, their domestic market. It's almost like, why wouldn't you invest outside Africa? I suppose it really turns the whole investing question around. Definitely. They recognize the sort of developed market, emerging market distinction that we would use, or does that not make sense when you come from that perspective? Yeah, they do recognize that distinction. I think particularly central banks, when they've been investing a lot more overseas, they're considering equities, emerging market debt, emerging market equities, infrastructure, real estate overseas as well. So a vast cross-section of different assets. So yeah, so similar to us, it's in a sense, I would even venture to say that sometimes they're even more sophisticated than we are here in the UK because they have, particularly the larger investors, obviously, on a very regular basis, they are rubbing shoulders with other sovereign wealth funds across the world, with other central banks across the world. They're not just focused on their domestic regions. So they exchange ideas, they're pushing boundaries, and they have a lot more access, I find, ready access to lots of different types of asset classes that sometimes UK may be a bit resident to invest in. That's really interesting. So I was going to ask whether the profile of their global assets looked similar to what a UK institutional investor's global assets might look like. So it sounds like there are some similarities, but actually there's potentially some areas where we could learn from them. Do you have any examples of those sorts of areas where they're maybe more pioneering them than perhaps we are? That's a very good question, Mary. I think one of the things is so, for example, sovereign wealth funds, they're attracting a lot more capital from different governments. I think a little bit different to what we're doing here in the UK. They're seeking a lot more partnerships, strategic partnerships with international co-investors, not just local co-investors. Of course, these co-investors have long-term investment horizons and want to not just do these partnerships for commercial interests, but also they have a genuine inclination to invest in their local economy in Africa, all across the region. Just what we talked about earlier about investing in an array of long-dated liquid assets, such as infrastructure projects, that may be a little bit different to what we're doing here in the UK. More natural resources, they're doing a lot more in ESG-type, climate change-related type stuff private equity funds, real estate developments, and so on. So a vast array of different types of co-investment partnerships, developing local economies, using overseas investors in order to enable them to do so. What is the rhetoric on ESG, and I suppose particularly climate change? We're sitting here in the UK, and we can point to some examples of the physical risks of climate change, and we're all quite familiar with talking about the transitional risks of climate change. And of course, there's the sort of concept of the just transition, and you don't want to be going through that transition in a way that disadvantages countries that perhaps haven't emerged yet, for example. When you're then sitting in one of those countries, is the rhetoric different or is there just a focus on this is something we all just need to muck in and the change needs to happen, so that's how we'll invest? I think it's more the latter. I've been having conversations with a few prospects in the region and they don't see it as a religion and they don't need a whole lot of convincing particularly in the US or in other developed nations, or even to some extent here in the UK, people treat it like a religion. And so if you don't believe in it, then you don't invest in it kind of thing. I find that in Africa, in most of the countries, and most of the conversations that I've been having with some of the investors, they are a whole lot more embracing. They see the impact of flooding, wildfires, all sorts of stuff happening across the continent. And so they don't need a lot of convincing. 
And so they're looking at the environmental stuff, the social stuff, lots of local projects, lots of youth programs, lots of things to alleviate poverty, et cetera, et cetera. But also on the governance, which unfortunately some of the countries don't necessarily have a strong reputation on that side of things. But they've just embraced it and they'll say, well, come hello, high water. We're going to address this kind of thing and we're just going to invest in the right kind of assets in order to help us to come out of this kind of challenging times that they've been facing in recent history. I suppose we've been talking almost as if these investors are one sort of homogenous group. And I guess perhaps it's a good time to reflect on the different investment objectives that some of these different groups will have. We've been talking a lot about long-term investing. Is it true that they're all focusing on the very long term or are some of them more thinking about helping balance current account deficits and those kind of things more in the short term as well? How do you see the whole landscape there of these kind of sovereign investors? Good point, Dan. They have different objectives and different kind of time horizons. But by and large, it is medium to long term. So, for example, in the central banks, they have what they call their stable tranche or their long term investment tranche, where they have far more scope to invest in more risky assets and more diverse types of programs, which may be different to some of the sovereign wealth funds where, of course, they're government backed and so on, but they may be focused on more short to medium term type projects and partnerships and co-investment projects and so on in order to help to boost the economy within, say, the next five years or so. So, for example, in Northern Africa, where some of the sovereign wealth funds are, are kind of trying to help alleviate some of the poverty in some of those countries, investing in local projects, investing in projects where they're encouraging entrepreneurship, encouraging youth, not just in education, but to helping them to drive the recovery in those economies. Lots of youth programs straight across the region that sovereign wealth funds are helping to back and to initiate. And yeah, pension funds are a little bit different. It's a really interesting mix, isn't it, of investment then and sort of economic stimulation, because the two things are sort of the same. I guess they're not quite the same objective, are they? I don't know if there's any insight onto how those two objectives are reconciled together. When we look at, for example, pension funds, of course, they're investing for the long term and they need to do that really. Their liabilities are long dated, etc. And so they have more freedom to go into more long dated types of assets, illiquid and liquid types of assets. In terms of some of the other sovereign investors, particularly sovereign wealth funds, they are more focused on other types of investments that are perhaps a little bit more esoteric, partnering with local businesses, partnering with other local types of investors that are perhaps more private equity type based, that are more willing to invest in programs or youth development or some of the local natural resources or trying to encourage people to get better education or sponsoring scholarships or those kinds of things. And also, as I mentioned earlier, talking about encouraging even more entrepreneurship across different countries, because there just aren't sufficient jobs within the usual established types of businesses, insurance companies and pension funds or whatever, banks. So a lot of them have to be relying more on technology, local neighborhoods, local innovations that they've been doing, some even electric vehicles. I'm telling you the other day, the first electric vehicle or electric bus, I can't remember which country it was, but it was before the UK got electric buses. They've been pushing the boat quite a bit, thinking a lot outside of the box in terms of their short-term, medium-term and long-dated type of investments. 
And I suppose where that balance lies between the long-term returns and the stimulating growth, as you've just explained, is different for a sovereign wealth pot than it is for a pension pot. And they do just inherently have different objectives. Yeah, that's right. Should we pivot? Because there was another sort of key theme we were really keen to discuss with you today, Norbert. And I guess my sort of intro to that is Norbert was involved in an internal panel to celebrate Black History Month a couple of weeks ago now. And it was so inspiring, the people across the panel, and Norbert was one of them. So we were really keen that, if you're comfortable, Norbert, that you would sort of tell us a bit about your story and your experiences in terms of how you got to where you are. Thanks, Mary. It's interesting. I'm Jamaican. I grew up in a little town called Kingston, which is the capital of the country. And shortly after I was born, my mom and dad split up as a result of that. For a relatively short time, I was homeless, and my mom and I were kind of homeless. And she was able to only afford rent for her a tiny shop in downtown Kingston, inner city Kingston. That was a lot of fun. Of course, as a child, you don't really recognize or understand what's going on. But when you're sleeping on wooden floors or little pieces of wood on the floor and everybody else has a bed, you just kind of think, yeah, that's just a norm. It doesn't really matter, really. My mom was a dressmaker and she did everything in her power to make sure that we had food on the table. And But even more important than that was my education. So thankfully, education was relatively inexpensive at the time. And she was very annoying when I asked her questions. <laughs> Like, mom, how does this work? How does that work? And she said, what do you think? Go and find out for yourself. (laughs) You're so annoying and really frustrating. (laughs) It wasn't until many years later that I realized that she was actually encouraging me to think for myself. So it's not just about rote learning in books and book knowledge. It's about understanding and having a thirst for knowledge and so on. And so thankfully, I had a really good education. And also separate from education, all the people in power of the leaders were black or, or from mixed race kind of multicultural kind of backgrounds. We had lots of women in power, more holding leadership positions. So that wasn't norm for me. And of course, as in the majority, as a black person growing up in the Caribbean, and I won a scholarship to come here in the UK to do my master's in actuarial science. And the rest was history, so to speak. So that's why I'm an actuary. But it's kind of interesting just comparing and contrasting growing up in Jamaica as a majority, even though I didn't necessarily have a lot, (laughs) compared to here being a minority and my, of course, my socioeconomic circumstances are vastly different compared to when I was growing up. And I was kind of recollecting the other day that it took me about 20 years advising trustee boards here in the UK before I saw another black person across the table. It's just very fascinating. It's incredible, isn't it? It is incredible, but So go figure. And so, especially last year in terms of the whole George Floyd events and so on, thankfully there's been a whole lot more emphasis on diversification. Of course, we've been doing this for a long time, but it's just now a whole lot more in the public domain. And I'm really thankful that that that's happening. And there's a lot more mentorship programs, diversity projects, there's talk about Black, there's all sorts of stuff going on right across the multicultural kind of spectrum that we're involved in. So I'm really, really proud of that and really pleased that those kind of conversations are kind of coming to the fore. Have you noticed, I mean, you just mentioned a number of the sort of industry-wide initiatives, well, global initiatives in some cases, particularly they were centered around some of the events of last year. Have you noticed a step change in terms of people's attitudes 
since some of those events or since the introduction of some of those initiatives versus 15 years ago when you'd never seen another black person across the table from you and the world I guess was a bit of a different place but what's your experience in terms of the change that has occurred? There has certainly been some improvement it's not just about talk thankfully there's a tendency isn't there for there to be lots of panel discussions and debates and lots of conferences and seminars. But thankfully, I've seen some action. In terms of some of the things that I've been seeing, right from the ground roots level, in terms of hiring, in terms of using recruitment consultants from different backgrounds, in terms of encouraging them or forcefully encouraging them to hire from a vast or different pools of universities and so on. In terms of partnering with local projects in different communities, whether it's in London or outside of London, towards hiring senior people who come from different types of backgrounds. I think that's been really, really helpful. It's been evident. We still have a way to go, obviously. (laughs) We are nowhere near where we want to get to yet. But thankfully, there's been a lot of positive energy, lots of positive movement, lots of mentoring programs going on. Even myself, I've not to necessarily blow my own trumpet, but it's a kind of out there and now in the ether where I'm partnering with the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries Foundation to actually sponsor students and provide scholarships for students in the Caribbean. Hopefully that will also help with efforts in the region and boosting the actuarial profession in the Caribbean region, but also providing potentially a pool or an increased pool of candidates to come across here in the UK to help to improve diversity and inclusion and equity and all that kind of stuff that is needed or required within our industry here. It's really interesting. It's nice to hear that it sounds like you're optimistic on a lot of these programs and sort of initiatives that have been launched. One question I was interested to get your take on was whether you think better conversations and more real conversations are really happening around that central question of race and racial diversity. I mean, that was something that really stuck out to me from our conversations with Gavin Lewis about a year ago now. It's easier to launch an initiative, I suppose, than it is to have a real conversation, I guess. That's what my question. And do you feel that the conversations are really moving on? The short answer to that is yes and no. (laughs) 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 And I hate saying yes and no. So the conversations are happening, but not at as fast a pace as it should. I find that there are a vast majority of companies that are willing to embrace the conversation and to have it both internally and externally and be seen to be strongly supporting all these different initiatives. But there's still a significant minority of firms and senior people involved that are very reticent to have that kind of conversation. I think that's one of the reasons why some of those conversations are just not happening. But also, once we start launching different initiatives, as you said, Dan, it's so easy to launch them, but it's so much more difficult <laughs> to actually sustain them. And a lot of times, a lot of the groundwork and brunt work that is needed to take place falls on the shoulders of a handful of people. And they have jobs, they have full-time jobs. So it's really important to have that kind of conversation or to continue to press forward. Thankfully, we're in Black History Month here, which I think helps, and we should continue to have Black History Month for the foreseeable future, obviously, for many, many, many years to come, just to celebrate Black culture and Black heritage and the things that a lot of Black people do and did back in the day, helping to build back Britain, especially after the Second World War and so on, but also to continue to have the right kind of conversations with the right people, straight across government, as well as senior leadership within the finance and investment industries, straight across pensions, and so on. 
When we talk in the ESG space, we talk about the risk of greenwashing. So companies increasingly knowing the right thing to say, but whether their actions are in line with what they're saying is another question. I can't help but feel like there's a risk that we end up with a similar phenomenon happening in the area of diversity. And I wondered if you had any thoughts on what we can do to look through the talk and whether there's any things that you would be looking out for in terms of actions that really demonstrate a company or a government is really acting on what they're saying. There are lots of initiatives, aren't there? There have been a few reports that have come out where they're strongly encouraging governments and companies to, I hate the word quotas, I hate that word, but something has to be done that is measurable, that's very objectionable as well, that people can actually see things happening. So whether you have, just as it is with gender, you have a target for having 30 or 40% or 30% of women on boards. We should be having that in terms of people from different backgrounds, particularly black or, I hear the word, minority ethnic people, but for want of a better phrase, having those kinds of statistics or metrics that can be used in order to help us to measure where we're actually moving the dial on this thing or not. I think even on the 30% for women, I mean, that's been a target for many years and it still hasn't really happened. It is happening, pushing boundaries, and it's increasing, certainly. But it seems as if the conversation around gender is a lot more comfortable, a lot easier than the conversation about race. So therefore, perhaps there's some reticence to put those kinds of kind of metrics for to, to address that particular problem. So some of those things, I think, are some of the answers. And actually, more sponsorships, more mentoring going on within the different industries, not just within the finance industry talking to school leavers, talking right across the entire education system, primary schools, secondary schools, universities, having the right kind of conversations and actually doing stuff that move the dial. So we're addressing it from lots of different angles within the workplace, within senior leadership level, within governments and within schools. And I think once we're addressing those different institutions or those different types of approaches, I think we'll get somewhere relatively soon. And everybody has to get involved as well. It shouldn't just only be on Gavin, as you mentioned earlier, Dan, or one or two other people. It's all of us from whatever background we have, we should be in this together and pushing the boundaries. That was a big thing that stood out to me from the conversations we did have with Gavin. And I would encourage any listeners who haven't yet listened to those, maybe go back and have a listen. I think they still stand up pretty well. But one of the points that really opened my eyes was that he made that point that Black people like himself have been saying about these sort of structural issues and some of the inequalities. And then people in power often say to them, right, okay, then, so what's the solution? And it's kind of like just that double bind of putting it back onto the people who've had this issue for the whole time and then putting the pressure back on them to do the extra work to solve it. And his point was, look, if we had the solution, don't you think we would have kind of already done it? So (laughs) it's a little bit more complicated than that. And it's a real cop out for anyone to just sort of push back and say, right, tell me the solution, then it's kind of a lot more incumbent on everyone to really understand a little bit more the issues. I think that was my main real thing I've reflected on quite a lot, actually, since we spoke to Gavin. Absolutely. Norbert, as we're moving towards the end of the conversation here, I wonder if you could pick out a couple of things that you're focused on or worried about over the next 12 months, either about investing in general or about this issue we've just been covering on diversity and inclusion. So one of the things I think is underappreciated a whole lot in our industry is the power of compound interest. I think a lot of investors miss out on higher returns or better benefits for their members when they delay their investment decisions, whether like going into new asset classes or changing their investment strategies. A lot of times I see 
investors wasting too much time just kind of either waiting for regulations or something else to happen to make their investment decisions. I think governance is really important. And I'm not necessarily just talking about fiduciary management or hiring an outsource CIO all the time, but this includes trustee boards or in-house investment teams that have direct responsibility over their assets. It's so easy to miss out on not just investment returns during the period of indecision, but also the compounding effect of those returns, of those missed out opportunities right up into the future when they actually need the money. So I think that's one of the things that I wouldn't say I lose a lot of sleep over, but I think that's one of the things that's underappreciated within investing just more generally, even on a personal basis as well, not just institutional. But the other thing that I've been thinking about recently is about rising interest rates and inflation shifting towards. So there needs to be a more bigger shift towards long-dated liquid assets and inflation-protected type assets, whether they're public or private assets as well, rising interest rates in certain economies, soaring debt levels as a result of the pandemic, even though some people have saved a lot of money (laughs) during this period of time. There have been a lot of people who have been taking on um, extra debt, which I think has been pretty harsh on their personal finances. And also the concern as well is right across Africa, but also other countries where they may be on red lists. They haven't addressed the whole COVID situation as yet. Failure to end the pandemic to next year or even the year after. What impact could that have on those local economies? So that's one of the things, especially that last one. That's one of the things that keep me awake at night. No, but this might be quite difficult given we've covered so many different areas in today's discussion. But we always ask our guests this. What's the one thing that you'd like listeners to take away from our chat today? You can have two if you really want, because they were quite different subjects. I don't want to force you not to mention one of them. I think in terms of investing, have an open mind when it comes to investing. What I mean by that is learn from other investors across the world. I think more collaboration, more conversations with overseas investors, I think, is really, really helpful, especially if you're a trustee of a UK pensions board or a sponsor, an in-house investment CIO type person, but rise across the investment spectrum. In terms of talking about different races, I think we just need to be bold. Just be a whole lot bolder in terms of taking action. Taking action is so much more important, as we already know, than just talking about it. The seminars are very, very helpful. The panel debates and discussions and hearing other people's stories are really helpful, really encouraging, even inspirational sometimes. But that can go so far and no further. Taking action, hiring the right people, delving into communities, participating in different parts of the country in terms of education, in terms of schools, in terms of universities, right across to boards and so on. And people who are actually in poll, who can actually affect change and just move the dial on some of these things are really important, I think. So be innovative, think outside the box and be a little bit different and be just willing to take action. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. Plenty for everyone to reflect on, I think, there in that. One other question we always ask people, Norbert, is what do you think is the most underappreciated thing in investing? You've already mentioned sort of compound interest a little bit. So if you wanted to add something extra to that as well. I think partnerships is one of the things that is underappreciated. A lot of investors right across the planet, but I'm focused more, say, in Africa or even in the UK, that do their own thing. They have a small amount of assets and they do their own thing. And they have their own trustee board and they have their own actuaries and advisors, etc. 
and the next pension fund has a similar thing. And before you know it, you have hundreds of different institutional investors hiring thousands of different advisors and so on. I think one of the things that is underappreciated is working together, pooling resources together, learning from each other, co-investing, partnerships, strategic partnerships, laying aside a lot of the individualism and seeing how much more effective and powerful we can push it out when we're working together in terms of investment returns, in terms of diversification, in terms of accessing lots of different types of assets that you want, that you can't access on your own. Those kind of things I think are really important and is certainly underappreciated still to this day. And I suppose perhaps if I could add one onto that list is the power to prompt change as well when working together in partnerships. So we're sort of at the brink of a huge transition, it feels like in the next sort of 10 to 20 years, and actually investors working together and having that very clear voice for the market, for governments, for institutions, is probably the best way to get the change that people want. Absolutely. You're right. So Norbert, before we let you go today, do you have any recommendations for good books, podcasts, TV shows, films? They don't have to be investment related, but they can be. One of the books, I'm reading two books at the moment, so a little bit naughty, but one of the books that I've been reading recently is A Promised Land, the latest autobiography from Barack Obama. I find it really interesting because really get into his brain and how we made big and small decisions on his way to the presidency, how we grappled with big issues while he was president as well. And of course, the book is not just focused on his political career, but also some of his personal stuff as well. Some of the softer style things in relation to his family, with his wife, Michelle, when he was on the campaign trail and is all powerful and big and big talks and speeches and so on that inspiring nations. And then at the end of the day, he just so tired and he just falls asleep on Michelle's arms. Light and day in terms of contrasting those two different types of experiences and so on. So I find that he was a really thoughtful guy. He regularly questioned himself. And I'm finding myself doing that a whole lot more these days as well. Not necessarily questioning every single decision that I make, but one of the things that I used to do was I used to play a lot of chess when I was in school and I was on the chess team, etc. And of course, as you know, when you're playing these kind of strategic games, you have to think ahead, three, four, five, ten moves ahead. And to some extent, that is coming back to me <laughs> recently, or that has come back to me recently. And even just reading his book has kind of helped to spark some of those kind of thoughts that I've been having, thinking through some of the decisions that we do need to make and what are the potential impacts on if I make this decision in terms of investing or if I make this decision in terms of my family or education for my kids, what are the different potential outcomes and what do I need? to do now in order to kind of offset some of those things. So getting into the head of a former president is kind of mind-boggling and very interesting and inspiring, really. Fantastic. Well, that's a really nice takeaway to leave us with, Norbert. Thanks. I love that book as well, by the way. I thoroughly recommend it too. So really interesting one. Well, Norbert, it's been a really good conversation today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been my privilege and pleasure. Thank you. It's really been a pleasure to chat to you today, Norbert. That's it from us this week on Investment Uncut. Do join us again next week for another episode. And in the meanwhile, take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.